We are going to have a word of a wonderful encouragement from the wonderful Naomi. All around, everybody clap. I'm going to pray for Naomi before she speaks. Thanks. You're welcome. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Naomi. We thank you for her heart. Her love for you, Lord, shines through to all. And Lord, as she brings this word of encouragement to us this morning, I pray that you would uh, anoint her from head to toe with your confidence, with your boldness, Lord, and that as she opens up her mouth, she will know that she is speaking your words to everybody that is listening in the room and online. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. Gosh, um, <laughs> this isn't really something that I'm usually comfortable with. Wow. The snow is really cool. That's what I'm wowed about today. When I moved to London, I did not think that I would see snow for like the next however long I'm here. And yet here we are, and it's snowing. Pretty incredible. Um, it's actually quite fitting that it's snowing and that I'm wowed by it because I wanted to talk about awe. Um, A-W-E, or uh, otherwise known as reverence, fear, respect, amazement. God is just so awesome, and we use that word so much. For anything, the snow is awesome, but God is truly awesome. And um, how often do we find ourselves in simple and complete awe of God? Whether it's from spending time in prayer, or reading the Bible, or, or meeting with him in everyday life, from seeing the beauty of his creation, or perhaps an answer to prayer. Either way it goes, whether it's the answer that we wanted or an answer that perhaps we didn't expect, how often do we find ourselves in awe of God? And I want to turn to Psalm 33, verse 8, if I can find it before everyone else does. Oh, and it just says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. We have plenty of reasons to be in awe of God, to have that respect for him, that fear for him, before we even get to our own personal reasons. It says in the Bible, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. We don't have to have a reason for being in awe of him. He is God. He is the one we should be in awe of. But if you want some reasons, I have some. Um, first of all, he created the entire, he created everything we can see, everything we can't see. He is the creator of all things. We can go to Genesis 1.1 and it starts with that in the very beginning. That is our first reason. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it almost seems like a throwaway line, like, oh yeah, God created the heavens and the earth. But when we really think about it, he created the heavens and the earth. Just saying that and thinking about it, my soul just, just wants to stop and just appreciate that. Just think about how incredible our God is. And then we have who he is, everything that he is. He is infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, faithful, loving, merciful, wrathful, kind, just, gracious, holy, glorious. I can read out each one of those words, and we don't have to have a reason for why he is each of those things, but each one of those things gives us reason to be in awe of him. What amazing love he has for us, what amazing grace he's given to us, how merciful he is despite 
all that we are as humans, how unchanging and faithful he is. The promises that he's made, he will keep. He is faithful, and for that we can be in awe of him. And then we can get to our own personal reasons. For example, well, a pretty obvious one I would go with, um, Jesus. Jesus died for us. He defeated the grave for us. He rose again for us. He didn't do that so that we would be like, oh yeah, Jesus died for me, great. Like we say it so much, Jesus died for me. But take that time once in a while. Jesus died for me. He thought about me on the cross. He knew that he was dying for everything that I have done and everything I would do. And yet he still went to that cross loving me and died for me. How often do we just stop and breathe and be in awe of him? And there's so much value in the, the deep theological, nitpicky, precise parts of our study, of our prayer. And all of that is so much it is so valuable as well, and there's so much awe we can find in the reasons why God uh, wrote these things, why he inspired people to write these things, everything that he said. There's so much awe in that, but there's also so much awe in just looking outside and seeing it snow. There's so much awe in seeing the sunset and the sunrise every day. He painted each one of those for you and for me to see, and yet sometimes it just goes unnoticed. So I wanna encourage you, today, whether it's in your worship, in your prayer, in your time of seeing people, or whether you're alone, just remember that who God is, is enough for us to be in awe of him. What he's done for us is enough for us to be in awe of him. The love he has for us is enough for us to be in awe of him. When you're brushing your teeth or brushing your hair, if you have any hair, <laughs> not looking at you, John. <laughs> just be in awe of him. Or if you're alone, and sometimes we can struggle with being in awe of God when we feel alone or we feel like there's no one there for us. But just remember what he did, what he is doing, what he will do. Even if you can't see it, he's always moving. Even if you can't see it, he's always doing something. He's behind the scenes working. And that is enough reason to be in awe of him. So yeah, that's good. Amen. Amen, amen. Thanks so much for that word, Naomi. It's just, it is awesome. I was just struck by the fact, you know, each snowflake is unique, and that's the awesomeness of God. But you can, the minuscule details that he's in. I'm just going to give some notices before I start. Um, first of all, it's just great to see people in the chat giving praise to God. Uh, a, a guest to me was Veronica, but it seems like other people might know her as V. Um, be good to meet you one day, Veronica, if we're ever allowed. Um, but it's good to see guests in the chat as well. Um, and just testimonies of God's faithfulness uh, from Teresa, from Debbie and Martin, just giving glory to God in what God's doing in their lives at the moment. So I uh, just want to thank everyone for sharing there. It's a great place to just connect a little bit with people. Um, just a few reminders yeah, about things happening. So tonight we will be gathering to, for, for prayer at 7 o'clock. Gathering in Zoom, <laughs> not here. Um, soon here, maybe, one day. Um, we also need drivers on Monday and Tuesday this week to take lunches to, uh, for the schools. Uh, it takes approximately 40 minutes. Um, and so at the moment, we won't be able to deliver on those days. So do contact John or Naomi if you can help. 
And uh, it also today is Holocaust Memorial Day, and there's an event tonight on YouTube. So if you do check your email that went out yesterday, and it's got the details of that. Um, if you don't get to watch it live, you can watch it on recording later as well. Yeah. So let's just uh, pray. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we want to come before you, Lord God. Just take a moment to just be aware of how awesome you are. Lord, that even though you created the heavens and the earth, Lord, you spoke into the depths of the universe, yet you knitted together the, the smallest parts of our being and you knew us, in a sense, just a speck in eternity, but yet you knew us, you know the, the hairs of our head. Lord, and you love us. Lord, we just want to receive that now, Lord God, and ask that you would come and minister your truth to us as we look into your word. We just welcome you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> um, often when I speak, or prepare to speak, I'll, I'll try and come up with a, a statement and think, you know, this is what you want people to come away with. And I thought I might just start with that. And because, again, if you, if you can pay attention for one minute, then that might be all you need. Um, but as I was praying and just seeking God about what to speak, this is what was put on my heart, that we need to have a divine encounter with God's grace that would change us forever and lead us into living in the love, joy, peace, acceptance, security, and freedom of God. Amen. So let me now explain maybe what that means. Um, I want to ask you a question, diving right in. Have you ever felt like you don't measure up? Have you ever felt that you aren't good enough, that you don't fit in, or you can't, you know, just your best efforts just don't meet the grade? Uh, you, you have dreams, maybe you aspire for something, but you keep failing, and you just, you just feel like you, you just you don't, it's not good enough, really. I've felt like that many times in life. But it got me to thinking, did Adam and Eve ever feel like that before the fall? Were they ever there in the garden and Adam was sitting there on the rock and just thinking, I just don't know if my life's going in the right direction. You know, am I going to be able to meet the bills? Am I ever going to, you know, meet Eve's expectations of me? Am I a good husband? Uh, was Eve ever wondering about similar things, you know, um, does Adam love me? You know, all these kind of questions that come into our head. You know, am I going to be a good wife, a good mother, or any of these things? I don't think they had those feelings. I think they were in that place, and they were secure in God in that place. Um, and so the, those feelings that maybe are very natural to us, they were as a result of the fall. But the reason Adam and Eve didn't feel that way is not because they were perfect in the sense of, you know, they could do anything they wanted, but because they were just completely absorbed in the grace of God. They, they, they had so many uh, insufficiencies, um, but yet 
they just were, in a sense, blissfully unaware of them because they were so safe in the grace of God. And so when we think about grace, it's good to understand what grace means. Uh, And grace is an interesting word in, in the scriptures. And in some respects, it's not just a word, it's a theme uh, because you see it outworked in many different ways. Um, interestingly as well, Jesus actually never used the word grace, um, but he lived it. Every moment of his life, he was the embodiment of grace. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a word called hesed, and I'm sure my pronunciation of any of these words is going to be terrible. Um, hesed, but it, ultimately what it means is covenantal love. And often that, because you get these, well, they're called grace words. And this meant covenantal love. And I likened it in marriage. And um, if you want your marriage to succeed, this is not a marriage sermon, but you might take a little tip here, you need covenantal love. Because if you have emotional love or erotic love, that will wear off. There will be days when you do not feel that. And that is when you have covenantal love that says, I have committed myself to you and I will love you even though you do not deserve it. That I will love you even when I do not feel it. So it's not love because of something you've done to me. Because obviously if someone's really nice to you, it's easy to love them. But covenantal love is saying, no matter what you do, I will love you. And that's a picture of grace because it's not based on what you do for me. It's because of my commitment to you. But the the more common word for grace in the Old Testament was the word hen. And that kind of means favour. And this word can only come about with a superior to somebody under them. And so you can't give hen to to people around you, um, just your peers. Ultimately, it could be, for example, a boss to an employee, for example, but ultimately it's reserved mainly for with God uh, and to humanity, because you cannot do God a favour. Um, we might think sometimes, you know, I, I actually, when I first became a Christian, I thought I was doing God a favour. Um, I thought, God, lucky you, you've got me. Um, yeah, that was a misconception. Um, but we can't do God a favour. It's the idea of that, the favour of God poured out to us, that which we do not deserve. In the New Testament, you've got the word charis. And again, the connections there are things like forgiveness and peace. And another word with ilios, which is often translated mercy. But all these words kind of mould in together with this theme of grace. And grace really goes against our natural inclination. Our natural inclination and the world tries to hammer this home is about human independence, human sufficiency to say, you can do it, be the best you want to be. You know, you can climb mountains, you can go across seas. And we want to achieve, we want to strive. And so grace is kind of contrary to that human spirit of independence that says, I can do it. Grace is saying, you can't do it, and I will give you what you need. And so this question of why do we need grace, uh, if you've got your, your Bibles, um, you're going to turn to the book of Romans and chapter 3. And Paul particularly was one of the great writers about grace 
in the New Testament. And I think it's particularly marked that, um, that Paul came from this very legalistic background, but yet he came through to realise that grace is what God always intended. And so we're going to read in verse 21 of chapter 3 of Romans. It says, But now the righteousness of God had been made, sorry, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Just going to stop there. So again, the issue here is about righteousness. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. And so in a sense, we think about the righteousness of God and when you've got law, law tells you that you're not good enough. You don't match up. The, you know, you're trying to keep the law um, and, and often that was the thing in the Old Testament. It was these, these failures of the law and they would bring the sacrifices and because they, they wanted to be righteous with God. And so people had this idea that righteousness was connected with the law. But Paul is saying that something else was manifested. Now, manifested means it didn't, it's not that it's brand new. It wasn't created, but it was revealed. Because the grace of God, which we're going to talk about, was always there. As I say, right back in the garden, the grace of God was there upon Adam and Eve. The grace of God was the way that God always intended us to live. It wasn't, you know, oh, let's come up with a new plan. We need grace now. Because we failed, we need, now need grace. Grace was always necessary. And it says that even the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And what it does, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So again, if we want to be righteous, which again is that connection with God, the rightness, the right relationship with God, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now again, just to remind us about faith. Faith is the actioning of what we believe. Because often people say they believe something, um, but they don't actually do anything with it. They don't act upon it. Because if I said to you, for example, um, down here at church, we've got packages of food for the week that you can come and you can collect it and then you can have that. We, you know, we've got hampers, we've got all these special foods and wines and whatever it might be, whatever takes your fancy. It's down here. You just got to, you've got to come and collect it. Now, faith is the actioning because you might go, well, that's nicer, Daniel, to put that on for us, but you still don't move out of your seat and come and get it. Faith is the thing that says, actually, I believe it's there and I'm going to go and get it. And so when we're talking about the righteousness of God, it's saying it's been made available to us in Jesus Christ, but we need to receive it by faith. It's only to those who believe, because there will be many who it's for, but they don't receive it by faith. And he says again, there is no distinction, which is great news. Again, I always think, let's take a moment here, and we, we get very complacent with this maybe, that he's saying there is no distinction, which means 
It's not just for the Jews. It's for all people. Every single person. There's no distinction. And take that moment to think, what if there was something that was so wonderful poured out by God that was only available for a small group of people? How would I feel about that? You know, you can see and say, I've got all this need, I've got all this desire um, lacking. I, I want to be right with God, but I just can't have it. It's only for that group of people. And Paul is saying, no, no, it's for everyone. And God has invited you to that today. And why is it for everyone? It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person, every person has sinned. Every person falls short of God's glory. There's none who is good. There is none who is righteous. There is none who meets God's standard. There is no one who can stand before God and say, I am good enough. God, let me do you a favour. There is no one who can do that. We have all fallen short of God's glory. But we can all be justified by his grace as a gift. Because grace is that part that says, I will give you what you cannot achieve. I will give you what you cannot do. I will give you what you cannot earn. It is a gift. And grace says, I will pour out my favour upon you. And he does this. How does he do this? Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, through the propitiation by his blood. So again, this is Jesus taking our place, substituting himself for us, his blood for ours, his death for ours, that we might have life. And so this is what Jesus did. He took our place on the cross. He paid the debt we could not pay. This is what he did. The question is, will we receive it? His grace was poured out. He gave us what we did not deserve. He did what we could not do. And the question is, will we receive it? And so this is what grace is about. None of us match up. None of us can meet God's standards. But this is why we need a grace encounter. Because maybe nothing I've said so far particularly is new to you. You know, I hope within this church you are very well aware that this is what we believe. That it is only by God's grace that we can be saved. But I know as well that for many years you can hear this and it never sink in. It never really resonates in a life-changing way. And, and something I've seen, I've seen this in my own life, and I'm going to share about that in a moment, but also in the lives of many others, that there comes a moment when it's like the light bulb comes on. When suddenly it's like, I, didn't, I knew it, but I didn't see it. I didn't receive it. I, did, I didn't appropriate it in the right way. Because actually, when you fully receive grace, it will transform your life forever. So my own testimony was, as I say, I, I came as probably quite a cocky 13-year-old um, to church and to faith, thinking I might do God a favour. But God quickly showed me that that wasn't the case. It was interesting that I came to God not because of a burden of sin, but actually when I came and actually met with God, I realised my own unrighteousness. I realised how far short I was because I saw him face to face. And for many years, I wrestled with that. And it was, um, again, maybe this is your experience as well, that it was like living on a roller coaster. There were just the highs and the lows 
and the highs were really high and the lows were really low. And there were parts where I just thought, I just want to jack this in. I can't do it. This is too hard. And this, the, the irony is, we can't do it. And I don't know if you've ever thought that in terms of faith. I can never meet God's standard. And it's like, amen, you cannot meet God's standard. It's impossible. There came a point, I remember, I think I was probably 20 years old. And again, you wrestle through this. And, and I, I, I remember I was at a conference, actually, in Ireland. Um, and I'd just been wrestling with God. Again, this feeling of, I don't match up. I, I'm not good enough. I can't do this, God. I cannot be righteous. I cannot meet your standard that you expect of me. That's how I felt. And I, I, was, I think I was on my knees just praying to God. And I opened up the scriptures, and through the scripture, God revealed to me in a moment that I was accepted in Jesus Christ. That his love for me was that covenantal love. Because of what Jesus had done, I was accepted. Because of who he was and his promise to me, he loved me. And in a moment, it was like a a weight lifted off my shoulders. And just incredibly changed, I think, forever. And, I, believe, and I, I look at this, and these moments in our Christian life are often very few and far between, where it's just like a lightning bolt out of, out of nowhere, or, you know, and God comes and just transforms us in a way that, it, that again, as I say, we will never be the same again. They are few and far between, but they are so important moments in our lives. I think one reason that they don't happen is because we do not wrestle with God. I think we live often our lives and we just get on with life, we get through things, you know, we, we, we feel the ups and the downs a bit. But I believe that there is a necessity in our Christian walk to wrestle with God. I'm going to explain what this means. So if you, one of the, the, the key wrestling matches in the Bible was in Genesis 32, if you want to turn there. And this was Jacob. So again, if we know anything about the history of Jacob, so Jacob was born to Isaac, yeah, if I remember rightly. He's the son of Isaac, and Rebecca, and so he was born with his brother Esau. So Esau was the older brother. Esau was the manly brother. He was the rough and ready one. He was kind of uh, the outdoorsman, the hunter. He he could do anything. Uh, and Jacob was a bit more like the mummy's boy. Um, he, um, yeah, he, uh, he grew up kind of striving, and so. There's a famous part where Esau comes in wanting some food and uh, Jacob sees the opportunity and makes uh, Esau trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. Because again, he's like, I see this opportunity. How can I, I project myself? How can I get something? How can I grasp something? And so he, he manipulated the situation. And we see this again and again. So later on when... Isaac is, is blind and dying and wants to bless 
his son Esau, the oldest. Rebekah gets Jacob to put on some goat's hair to make himself a bit more hairy, cook something and sneak in there to the blind father and steal the blessing of his brother. Again, a manipulator. He goes into, uh, because of this, he fears his brother and leaves and goes to his uncle Laban, who again meets another manipulator there. There's a whole bunch of them. Um, It's interesting that uh, Rebecca, who seems a manipulator as well, is the daughter, no, niece, I think, of Laban. Yeah, niece of Laban. So again, this whole family ethos of let's manipulate to get what we want. A manipulation is a sign of insecurity, just so you're aware of that. And so, again, Jacob and uh, Laban, they have these years of manipulating each other. You know, uh, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying the wrong woman, which is a whole other story, um, how you do that. And then, uh, then Jacob gets two wives. Um, and then there's, even in the wives, there's this whole manipulation of who's got the most kids. Um, they have this like, battle of all... Oh, like, oh, she's had a kid, let me give you my servant so I can have that kid. And then they all have these loads of kids. And then Jacob wants to leave um, and take some um, uh, cattle with him. And Laban manipulates him into getting the wrong cattle. But then Jacob puts the goats to sleep next to these reeds that have got stains on them. So he gets those. It's just, you just, one thing after another, after another. This is the kind of guy... And again, remembering this all comes out of insecurity. Because it's like, if I do not do this for myself, then no one else is going to do it for me. If I do not fight this battle, no one else is going to be kind to me. No one else is going to be gracious to me. And even at this point where he returns back to the land, and that's where we're going to read, when he... um, He's coming back to his brother, and obviously he's a bit scared about what's going to happen. And so what he does, to begin with, he sends out gifts ahead of himself as kind of like this, like, let's make peace, brother. Even then, he sends out parts of his family ahead of himself, kind of, let's soften the boat, let's, let's kind of, like, show him I'm a family man now, and he might think good of me. And in the end, he's left just with himself. And I read that in 24. So this is chapter 32, verse 24. And it says, and Jacob was left alone. And I think that's so important because so often we do not allow ourselves to be left alone. And what this represents is this kind of stripping back of everything because we fill our lives with so much that I believe it hinders these encounters with God. We fill our lives with busyness. We fill our lives with people, with activity, with all these things. And it, it doesn't allow us this moment. And it's interesting that the, the, the moment I had with God was when I was away. I'd gone away. But even there, I, I'd taken myself apart from everything else. I was in a room on my own. And I was doing business with God. Jacob was left alone. And he says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
So again, there's this wrestling, and this man is God. It's the incarnate God. And so there's this wrestling between God and Jacob. And the key thing was, Jacob would not let him go. Jacob knew that there was something that needed to happen, and that if he let God go, he would not receive it. He needed something from God. And again, too often we, we let go too lightly. Because I don't know if you ever feel these moments where you're like, man, I, I need to do business with God. I was reading about uh, Charles Finney, if you know who Charles Finney is. Uh, and Charles Finney was a great saint of old. And he knew he had to deal with the salvation of his soul. And so, I don't think it's particularly a good thing to do, but he just basically bunked off work um, to go into the woods. He, he had already set Monday, I think it was Monday and Tuesday, as days off so that he could seek God. But this was a day when he was supposed to go in the office, but he just sensed the pressing of God and he went off into the woods to deal with God and to, to wrestle with him. We need to make space to do that with God and we need to persevere and not then get distracted by something else. And so in this moment where God was wrestling with Jacob, what God was doing as well, he was breaking the strength of Jacob. Now remember what I was saying earlier, that, that as human beings we think, I can do it, I just need to do it. And Jacob was thinking, I'm going to wrestle with this man and I'm going to defeat him, I'm going to succeed. But he couldn't. And it came to the point where God put out his socket, his hip. Because God was saying, you need to realise your weakness. You need, and he had to break his strength. And in verse 26, he said, then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I pray that you have that fervency with God. I will not let you go until you bless me. And God said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In this moment, God gave Jacob a new identity. And I think this is so important that as we wrestle with God, what God does, God will come and tell us who we are. Because again, we can have all these ideas of who we are, but God needs to come and tell us who we are. At the moment, I'm reading through the book of Job. And, and Job's a funny book. Again, that's, it's a roller coaster, really. And, and you're presented with Job right at the beginning, who seems this really righteous man. But the impression I get of Job is he's very much like the Pharisees in the scripture who really had a, pursu a pursuing of God, lived righteously. They did live righteously. They sought to obey the law. But when you actually see who he saw God as and who he saw himself as, they were just slightly off kilter. They weren't quite right. And so in this process that God is dealing with Job, God is deconstructing him to then build him up to a right position. You see it as well with the Apostle Peter. Again, a man who thought, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to go to the cross with you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to do it all. And Jesus had to bring him to the place of reality. That that wasn't who he was. That wasn't what he could do. He had to bring him low so that he could be then by used by God. 
and again. So we have this feeling within us that we can succeed, that we can do it, but God is saying, you need to come and receive my grace. And so what I believe is that there's a divine encounter awaiting for each of us. And this encounter with God will release us into life. But to do so, we must come to the end of ourselves. I remember um, when I was young, I did some lifeguard training. And if you've ever done this, this idea that when, you, when you're swimming up to save someone, what you have to do if the person's there in the water and they're flailing around and you swim up and they try and grab you, you have to leave them. Because it's only until they give up that you can save them. Because in lifeguarding, if they try and grab you, they will pull you down with them. You have to wait till they've given up. In the book of Matthew, chapter 16... quite a famous scripture, verse 25. And Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I know in my life there's times where I felt like I've been drowning. Where I'm like, God, I can't, this is impossible. Things are overwhelming. And my trouble is, my natural inclination is, just try a bit harder. You can do it. And the struggle is, in a lot of life, I can do it. I, I can be very capable. I can do a lot of things. But looking back, I realise how I've missed out on the, the blessing and intervention of God because I've striven to do it on my own, in my own strength. And Jesus is saying, you need to give up your life. If you keep trying to save it, you'll lose it. But if you give it up, you'll find it. And the reality is, I think God is not waiting for us to become weak. And often when people think this about religious people, about Christianity, you know, it's a crutch. It's, it's for those who are weak. God is not waiting for us to become weak. He is waiting for us to realise we are weak. And again, that is contrary to the way of the world. No one loves to go around saying, you know what, I am weak. But Paul loved this. If you turn to one of our last scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. Paul was very aware of his weakness. He had been talking about this thorn in the flesh. And it says, it says but he, being God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Right back in the beginning, Adam and Eve, they lived by grace. They lived by the favour of God and in a sense they were blissfully unaware of it, but they lived just receiving from their Heavenly Father. We might be more aware of it, and you might be very aware of your weaknesses. You might be very aware of your insufficiencies, your shortcomings, that you don't fit in, or whatever it might be. 
if you don't feel those things, then I'm, I'm worried for you, to be honest. Um, do come and speak to me. It sounds like a headmaster. Come and speak to me after the service. Um, because, again, if we don't feel that, we'll never come to the place where we realise that our life can only be whole and we can only be free when we are living in the grace of God. And if you keep trying, because God was saying to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. All you need is my grace. You don't need to fix this. You don't need to do this. You don't need to overcome this. You just need to live in my grace and I will work for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The greatest freedom comes where you say, God, I can't do it, but you can. And I can live in that security. I can't manipulate every situation. But I trust you, Lord, in every situation. I don't understand it, but I know that you are in control. And so God is calling us to live in his grace and to be completely reliant on him. Amen. I'm going to invite the band to come up and we're going to just do a couple more songs, I think. But I want you to use this time, this moment, just to be honest with God and maybe to begin that wrestling with him. Because again, if God has spoken to you, if, if, if anything that I've said has spoken to you and resonated in your heart, where you're thinking, yeah, God, I need something more. And I pray that you would have that attitude that Jacob had, where he said, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. And this is the difference. If you think about the parable of the sower, sometimes the seed comes in and it just gets taken away by the birds. And that's where the word of God can come and we don't grasp it. We don't hold on to it. Again, the scripture says the seed needs to go into the ground and die, that it might bear fruit. And so that seed needs to come into your heart now and you need to wrestle with God to pursue him, to not get distracted, but if you can. And if, if right at this moment, for some reason, you can't do it, then make that plan, say, God, at this time tonight, at this time, whenever it might be, I'm going to do this. I'm going to press into you and spend time with him. Amen.